Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Yeah, your dad, what's going on? What's going on? Uh, nothing much going on here. Just uh, celebrating John's birthday this week. Hey, hey. that's what's up. <laughs> yeah, so this is, this is his week. Focus is not on me. It's on oh, him. you get a whole week? Okay. You get a whole week. <laughs> <laughs> that's what's up. Most people get a weekend, but John get the whole week. Right. Yeah, he's pretty special. So that's what's up. That's what's <laughs> up. Any uh, any plans, or is this so you're trying to surprise him, or you know, got you just anything special? So unfortunately, unfortunately, he also has to work this week. So it's oh. you know just the the little things throughout the week. Dinner here, you know, we actually yeah. had a wedding and stuff. You know, okay, that just happened. So. Yeah, we did a little bit of traveling, so. That's what's up. That's what's up. Well, shout outs to John. Happy birthday, brother. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I, I mean, I'm not trying to put your business out there, but shout out to you and Kristen. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> also true. New uh, two year anniversary. What an anniversary. So. Yeah. I appreciate that. VHD shout outs. I guess it's a, it's a good week. Yeah, pretty good week, pretty special week. Oh, man. And the fact oh. that we're already in November. I know, a couple months, y'all, to, to get them 2019 goals out the way, if you haven't yet. Oh. <laughs> you know, Child, surprisingly enough, uh, <laughs> you know, one of my goals has been to, uh, you know, to get my weight to, uh, to, I had a goal weight, but I haven't mm-hmm. been working on it for most of the year, but I started in August and I'm, I'm, on, I'm 13 pounds away now. Oh, congratulations. So I hit that goal. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, I'm almost yeah. there. Yeah, I'm trying to buckle down this month um, in terms of just like, I don't want to wait till January 1st. I really need to get back into exercising and eating right um, for my own well-being and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, my goal is trying to get back to my Purdue weight. So I'm eight pounds away from that. Oh, and that's I to get awesome. Five pounds less than my Purdue weight. Yeah, hey, y'all, <laughs> guys, Ty was like a, a health maniac at Purdue. Yeah. So if he's almost back to the Purdue weight and going to get under that, then, you yeah, know, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> I'm going to get back in shape, start 2020 off right. Trying to chat it off right. So that's, so that's what's up. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, all right, so we got some. Uh, Oh Lord news before we get to you know our special guest this week. We do, we do. Alright, so let's hop into that. Hello, and welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening oh Lord news of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say Okay, so there was one story this week that just really, really burned my britches, um, <laughs> as they say. So 
Wait, what, what, wait, is it bridges or britches? Bridge. Oh, I don't know. Uh, I don't I mean, know. I'm just kidding. I just I usually say britches, but maybe it's I think it is britches, but I don't even I just ask because I'm not even sure what britches are. <laughs> no, I think uh, you know, like underwear. That's what I thought. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Okay. Well we'll we'll look that up. Yeah, um but a Greenwood Village, Colorado family's home was destroyed after an armed suspect took refuge inside of the home. Now, the man had stolen like a shirt and a belt from Walmart, uh, fled from the Walmart. Police chased him into this home. Chow, the police got SWAT and the firing squad. And by the time they were done with the home, like throwing like, you know, little smoke bombs or whatever it is, like, I think they drove like a, a, a armored vehicle into like the home oh wow the home was completely destroyed it had to be demolished by the city Jeez, now, yo. yes now this is what pissed me off the fact that the city said that they did not owe the family anything because their home was destroyed in the process of the police doing their job oh wow Wow. Yes. So the only thing the city offered them was like 5000 in like um, temporary housing assistance, but they said they did not owe them anything for their house. And uh, an appeals court um, agreed with them. And so the, the family is willing to take it all the way to the, Supreme, to the Supreme Court if they're willing to hear it because they had to completely rebuild the home. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, yo, yeah, nah. I mean, there gotta be. Even, the city will say that because that's a lot of money, but I'm suing. Like, I don't care. I'm, you know, they paying up somehow. Because uh, yeah, if you just leave it up to them, I feel like they would take the easy way. I'm like, yeah, we don't owe you nothing, and, and then expect you to fight and earn that. But I still messed up in a lot of way. And what was crazy to me is they did this over probably less than thirty dollars worth of merchandise. Mm. Cause it yes. came, he had a belt oh, and I think like two belts and a shirt, something he stole something like that. Home completely okay. destroyed. Yeah, we'll link that because I was just like, that's so ridiculous. That's wild, yeah. No, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. And I just looked up uh breeches too. And so is it, it's is like it? <laughs> it's you said they either call breeches or britches, and they're pretty much trousers like like pants yeah, from the okay. 19th century, like you know, like George Washington type pants. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody even wear those kind of pants in the world, but it's funny, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, half right. we cleared that up. But yeah, <laughs> it burnt my britches. Um, okay, this next story, I think it'll really interest you. So, a judicial. A district court judge in Lafayette, Louisiana, is fighting to actually be able to hear more criminal uh, court cases in that particular county after prosecutors asked that she be recused in all criminal cases. 
Now, why, you ask? Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So what happened is she was critical of or she criticized uh, the district attorney's office and prosecutors saying that they unfairly prosecuted uh, people from like communities of color. Uh, Mm -hmm. She was uh, critical of uh, said that African-Americans were like incarcerated more harshly, Uh, made other comments saying, I think she said that um, pre-court or pre-trial divergence, uh, wait, pre-trial, what what is it called? Diversion programs. Diversion programs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, were highway robbery um, and made other comments that were critical of the criminal justice system. Now, they have accused her of, quote, being like abusive um, and like, I guess, sidebars or something like that. But essentially, they are saying that she is biased and would not um, allow them to fairly like prosecute their cases because of her criticism of the criminal joint system. Criminal Because <laughs> she just not letting system. y'all lock people up easily. Like, <laughs> <laughs> now y'all mad and want to get her out because she's making you actually work and do your job. I mean, that's all it really is, you know, just making sure like, no, you cr- you're criticizing or critiquing them enough to make sure like the people you're, you know, convicting or charging are supposed to be there and they're worth warranted. So I know the DA office is probably really mad because they got to do a lot more paperwork and work uh, to make sure because most of the time judges just kind of go with the flow and like, all right, all right, all right, let's keep it moving. Mm -hmm. Um, But if she's putting, you know, slowing that down and making them work, I can see why they'd be upset with that. For those of you who don't know, uh, you know, Lafayette, Indiana, West Lafayette is where the school is, where Purdue University is. And then Lafayette is literally right next to it. It's like across this like 100 foot little bridge over the Wabash River. Um, But the demographics are really different because in West Lafayette, a little bit more affluent. That's where the school is. That's where a lot of professors are working. That's where a lot of the kids go to school. And then right across, um, it's a lot more diverse in a lot of ways and you have a lot of people of color that come from places like Gary and Chicago that want to kind of get out of those environments and then come live in Lafayette, Indiana. And so there's like a lot more um, tension, if you will, between like the criminal justice system. I mean, I know Daph has talked about her st- her story with uh, getting stopped by the police in Lafayette and, and I've had run-ins with the police in Lafayette. And so I can see how like they're really trying to push these folks out of there compared to, you know, the system. And so I know, oh, oh, this is Lafayette in Louisiana. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, did I say Indiana? Uh, yeah, it, it should have been. I, think it, I, I can't remember. <laughs> oh, I thought it was Lafayette, uh, Lafayette Indiana. I can't remember what yeah. you said. You might've said Louisiana, but maybe I just yeah, thought I heard Lafayette Louisiana. was thinking, oh, okay. Then forget everything I just said, y'all. <laughs> I just text Ty. I was like, uh, Louisiana. But everything he said about Lafayette, Indiana is true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That stuff is still true. So it would definitely make sense if that was happening. Um, yeah. I think you might have said Indiana, though, but it's okay. Okay. Well, y'all, this is Lafayette, Lafayette Louisiana. Louisiana. Yeah. But maybe I heard it wrong. But okay. That, I mean, in Louisiana, it still makes sense, too. That's even good that it's happening there, too. Yeah. Because, uh, yes. I can see a lot of uh, racism still going on in those places. Uh, but yeah, shout out to the judge and hopefully she don't got to get removed. Or is it a he? It's a she. It's a she. Yeah, yeah. she don't got to get removed um, and keep fighting that good fight, fighting the system from yeah. within. We need more people like that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So I have two more stories, but they're more so related Mm -hmm. to our topic. So I don't know if you want to jump in there with anything you might have to share with our audience. Um, So uh, uh, just a couple, um, one story on, uh, I was looking at uh, this post going around on social media talking about, um, uh, you know, a lot of pushback is against people using or companies using antibiotics in their food uh, because it's creating like antibiotic resistance to things that we needed to fight. And so um, there was uh, pretty much, I think it was, I can't remember who did it. Oh, the World Health Organization actually (laughs) um, went around and tested a bunch of the fast food restaurants chains, uh, food, like how much antibiotics they use in their meat. And so a few of uh, the more popular ones received an F grade for how many antibiotics they use in their meat. Uh, these would include places like Burger King, Jack in the Box, Olive Garden, Chili's, Applebee's, Pizza Hut, Domino's, Little Caesars. Um, places that received an A were only two, which was Chipotle and Panera Bread, who don't use Shout any, out. Um, <laughs> Shout out don't to use- the two fast food restaurants I eat. <laughs> Yeah, they don't use any antibiotics in there. So they got an A. And then uh, McDonald's and Subway got a C uh, because they're in the, they have been in the process for a while of using less antibiotics in there. So they're not all the way there yet, but they already started it. Um, so just a quick note for y'all who might eat fast food. There are some places who are doing a little bit better than others when it comes to their, their meat products. And another quick story that I thought was... Uh, Interesting. So talking about like fast food restaurants, the former owner of Papa John's, you know, John Shatner uh, is mm-hmm. mad and wrote an op ed in New York Times. I don't know. Did you hear about this, Dev? In the New York Post, I mean, um, I because we talked about before how Cuomo used the N word in a radio interview. Right. Um, and mm-hmm. then so uh, John, um, the John Shatner, the former CEO of Papa John's had to step down because he used the N word before. And so he wrote a New York Post op ed upset be, uh, as far as how everybody responded to how uh, Cuomo did it compared to when he did it and said it's not fair <laughs> and that he shouldn't have had to step down because of using it because Cuomo didn't have to step down for using the word. Uh, I'm like, everybody's like, bro, you really mad because you use the word and you mad because you couldn't stomp at your feet because you wanted to say it and couldn't get away with it. Yeah. Because politicians stepped up and supported Cuomo and all this other kind of stuff. But he's also the governor. You're a yeah. CEO. <laughs> so it's a little different. I mean, people will probably, if if they remember, they will respond to that with their votes. Like, and the people who had votes at your company responded in that way. It's just a different process, dude. Yeah, yeah, different process. And he still owns 16% of Papa John, so it's not like he's not still making any money off of it. But he said the company did take, like, a hit with his brand after that happened. And so he wrote a whole op-ed defending his use of the word and said he should use it too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I want to know how you feel about, like, Shaq being the face of Papa John's now. Yeah, I, I just, I don't know. I, I feel like um, it's a, it's strategic on their part because they've taken a hit <laughs> because of what happened when their former CEO used it. And so naturally you get a popular, likable, you know, black face up there. Everybody can, you know, support it again. Um, 
you know, I mean, I can see why they make that move, but I also know why they're making that move. Um, so I don't know how genuine it is, right? Like, it would have been different if they were yeah. doing that kind of stuff before. But you know, they're trying to save face a little bit and have have a black figure up there. So, yeah. I mean, I don't eat pizza like that anyway and yeah uh, papa john's for sure so <laughs> yeah i eat like yeah. at specialty pizza places yeah i'm gonna eat pizza yeah but i love shack though i ain't gonna lie yeah 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 shack yeah shack is cool <laughs> man but ain't enough to make me go ahead and buy some papa john's i'll tell you that yeah yeah and uh i guess before we get to your stories that are leading to our topic a couple political updates uh one of the biggest is that uh beto o'rourke has dropped out of the presidential race, um, which is interesting because he was just on the breakfast club uh, (laughs) telling people to vote for him. And then just a couple of days after that, he, he drops out of the race. um, Did he um, give a reason behind it? Um, I don't think he gave any particular reason, but you know, his main talking point was he wants to keep the party unified. Um, you know, uh, and doesn't want to create further separation. Yeah. So he was like, that was his. So, I mean, it was a good, you know, marketing angle on his point for stepping out. And if he knew he wasn't going to, you know, win, let's let's not keep it going for too long. Right. And start getting to those leading candidates so we can get some momentum. So I think he realized that and it was a bigger hill for him to climb. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody else who's looking like things is getting a little rough is uh, Kamala Harris. She has closed up shop at three uh, three of her four headquarters in New Hampshire mm-hmm. and fired a whole bunch of people. Now she's pretty much volunteers there and closed up a shop in Baltimore. Seems like she's trying to put more of her attention in Iowa now. Uh, but even in places like New Hampshire, where she had a lot of going on, she was at 9%. And already in this past week, she's polling at 3% there and similar in other places. So she has been dwindling down pretty rapidly with her ratings in the polls and it started to close up shops. So she may be one of the next to get out because she's polling pretty much the same as uh, Andrew Yang at this point at 3%. Mm. I'm interested to see where their supporters will go. Like who will we start seeing like more rising in the polls from? Well, one of the, it's interesting you say that because uh, one person has really been shooting up the polls lately. Uh, Both, well, one, Elizabeth Warren Warren has continued her upswing. And so she is leading the pack and actually creating some separation. But somebody else has closed the gap between others. And that's uh, Pete Buttigieg, who is now sitting in third right now. We have Warren at 22%, Sanders at 19%, Buttigieg at 18 and Biden at 17 Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. (laughs) That is quite the turnaround. That is quite a turnaround. So that's a massive upswing for Buttigieg, for sure, who was polling in the single digits and then got to the low, like 10%, and is now up there and, and catching up to those to those folks. So I think this plays a part in folks, like you said, um, when somebody like Beto leaves and uh, these other kind of white males have left, I think people might swing to Buttigieg uh, uh, in a lot of ways too. I think he's seeming to get a lot of those newer votes. Um, so this is interesting to watch folks because, you know, typically in every election, you'll see somebody kind of surprise us. And mm-hmm. I wasn't sure who it was going to be. And it seems like it's Buttigieg who's on his way to making it to 
the fun, final four, if you will. <laughs> mm, Mayor Pete. But, you know, they do say like the people that are leading the pack in the very beginning often are not the people who end up being like the candidate or the winner is like the person that comes from behind and just like surprises you. And so Mayor Pete might be that person. He I don't know. I need be. to look a little bit more into him. Exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> Uh, cause I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't paying too much attention to him cause I wasn't sure how far he was going to go, but now he's up here now. Yeah. We got to start looking at his yeah. policies and having a little bit more discussion on BHD about what, what he stands for. And his governance as a mayor, cause that will mm-hmm. tell you a lot about what mm-hmm. type of leader he would be as a president. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, he's in South Bend, which is, you know, a lot of people of color out there and being elected. So he has, uh, you know, um, interaction with black folk, but we'll see how far it goes. But, you know, from my field of things and from conversations I've been hearing about him, he seems to be not going as far left leaning as, you know, a Warren and Sanders. I wouldn't say he's a centrist, but um, maybe a little more moderate uh, in his policy. And so we'll see. We'll see what oh, I'm going to look more into it and then we'll have more discussions about it for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so these final two stories will lead us into our topic. Um, So a man who's been in prison um, for the last 18 years recently um, had a major medical issue. Mm. So 18 years ago, a man tried to smuggle some marijuana in prison by sticking it up his nostril. He stuck it so far up there that he was never able to retrieve it. What? Yes. And just recently, doctors had to go in and put it out. Like over the years, he suffered from like sinus discomfort um, and et cetera. But he thought that he had just ingested it. He did not realize that it was still stuck up there. And doctors recently retrieved it. Yo, that's crazy, man. (laughs) Yeah, it it actually calcified in there. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, that was... That was the wildest thing, trying to smuggle... Smuggle some drugs up in there, some weed up in there. Yes, (laughs) yes. You couldn't get it out. Like, how far you got to push it up there? You can't get it out. I, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm like, how did you breathe, dude? Yeah, that's crazy. That's, and always just probably, I wonder if you're just always smelling it. Like, I don't know. I know, right? Well, if he <laughs> thought he ingested it, I guess he wasn't smelling it. Oh, right? yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Okay. And for this last story, a major study was just released and they found that there's little evidence that cannabis helps with depression, anxiety, and other health conditions, despite growing claims that the drug is a useful treatment. Mm. So mm-hmm. I wonder I wonder how, because I know people have been using it for, so you said depression and anxiety? Depression, anxiety, and other uh, mental health conditions. And they actually found that um, it can make symptoms of psychosis worse. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. No, this is about to make a lot of people upset. If this starts to be, you know, influencing, uh, I guess, doctors' prescriptions. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of people have been uh, getting diagnosed with anxiety. Uh, 
to to get this the medical license or whatever. Yeah. To get the <laughs> so, yeah. I wonder how it also informed debates or discussions uh, around like the political movement to legalize it federally. Yeah. If it doesn't truly, at least for mental health conditions, like, you know, there are other conditions that people use it for cancer and et cetera like that. And that wasn't mentioned in the study, but um, it's just interesting how this will play into um, these larger debates that are happening now that uh, most of the Democratic candidates have like come out in support of like uh, federally legalizing it. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess if most people are doing it just for recreational use to lessen the burden of the criminal justice system, I guess it really won't matter too much if they're not trying to do the medical, you know, use it for the medical portion. I um, guess not. Yeah. But don't be out here see. talking about it. Help with your anxiety. Not trying to make it worse. <laughs> yeah, you can't use that as an excuse, though. <laughs> that's, the, <laughs> uh, that's funny. Um, and I'm sure more studies uh, uh, continue to, you know, uh, come out to see how reliable these findings are because these are probably just a, you know one of the first kind of bunch and they're probably pretty reliable but you know other people are going to run and test it to see if it yeah, holds I mean, up that's, that's the name of the science game replication yep 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 so we'll keep an eye on that for sure and i'm sure we'll hear more about it as time goes on but yeah no, that's a good segue into today's guests and topic uh, with Dr. Kwasi Owusu Bimpa from the University of Toronto, here to talk to us about cannabis in Canada, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. Uh, most of the conversations we've talked about, even with just Daphne and I um, dealing with marijuana, even last week's conversation talking about Bernie's legalization proposal, et cetera, have focused on the U.S. and the U.S. context. And it's good to hear about what it's like uh, for our neighbors in the north and mm-hmm. how they handle handle cannabis because you know the reputation is that Canada does a lot of things right when it comes to their policies government criminal justice system etc and I think some things from this interview will surprise you <laughs> about our perceptions of Canada mm-hmm. and what really goes on up there when it comes to their, their criminal justice system cannabis etc and what it looks like for mm-hmm. us Yeah. And I really like that this, like you said, this conversation, you know, we are always so focused on the U.S., just whether it's cannabis or anything else. And it thinks about like um, cannabis from like a global perspective, especially with Canada being like the first G7 country to legalize it. And like what lessons can we learn from Canada? What are the implications of it and et cetera? So this was a really good conversation. For sure, for sure. So, all right, without further ado, let's get into it and then we'll catch up with y'all afterwards. Legalized recreational and medicinal cannabis use is spreading across the United States. Additionally, nearly every major Democratic presidential candidate has offered support for the federal legalization of recreational marijuana. For today's episode, we discuss the implications of cannabis legalization and ways to reduce the harm caused by prohibition by interviewing Dr. Kwesi Owusu-Bempa, an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Toronto. Dr. Owusu-Bempa's work focuses on intersections of race, crime, and criminal justice, as well as cannabis legalization in Canada. During our conversation, we discussed the global debate around cannabis legalization, the economic benefits of legalization, and the unintended consequences of cannabis legalization for the Black community. 
We also explore his work on race and policing in Canada. Welcome, Dr. Owusu Bimpa. I'm doing well. Thank you for the invitation to talk with you guys. Yes, we're so excited to uh, because we've had a few conversations about marijuana legalization, but uh, Canada is what on the, the second country to legalize it nationwide. So, it you know, very interested in getting the perspective outside of the U.S. So mm-hmm. very happy mm-hmm. to have you. Yes, yes. Yeah, happy, um, to, happy to chat about it. There's been a lot of discussion, obviously, about cannabis and a lot of smell of cannabis since uh, October 17th of last year. So <laughs> I can only imagine. About. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd like to start off our interviews with just getting our guests to introduce our, themselves to our audience. Um, so you can just take a moment to tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what you do and, and how you got into this work. Sure. Um, so she said, my name is Akwasi Wusubempa. I am an assistant professor of uh, sociology at the University of Toronto, uh, trained as a criminologist. Uh, I, I did my uh, undergraduate in Ottawa, Ontario, and my graduate studies in Toronto. I actually went in to study criminology, wanting to be a police officer. Uh, I was born in the United Kingdom, and I had this kind of rosy picture of policing. Uh, moved to Canada. My neighbor was a retired cop, and I know he'd had a gun in a fast car and got to chase bad guys. And, you know, from what I'd seen on TV, that sounded kind of fun. But uh, when I started studying criminology, um, you know, the realities of policing became much more real. Uh, I'd had generally decent experiences with the police, but, you know, I'd seen my dad have some pretty negative experiences. And I know many of my friends had as well. And, you know, the, the realities are large, largely of race and policing um, actually came to the public uh, consciousness in Canada at that time as well. The first year I studied criminology, um, our, la- our largest uh, newspaper um, ran a special series on racial profiling, which brought racial profiling you know, into the public realm in Canada. And uh, I kind of immediately uh, made the choice there and then that I was going to study race and policing rather than be a police officer. Uh, that brought me to Toronto for grad school. And when I was finished, I spent a couple of years actually at Indiana University uh, before coming back here to take the job I have now. Um, and as you said, much of my work's on race and justice and race and policing generally, but uh, as anyone who's done some work in this area knows, you can't study these issues without studying drugs. Uh, I like to drop the line, although there are many other people who've said things, but, you know, Tupac's instead of a war on poverty, they got a war on drugs so the police can bother me. And uh, that rings as true today as it did when he, he wrote those lines. Mm-hmm. So I just I just want to say this. Policing is very different from being a professor. So you, you got a completely different lifestyle now. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Like, as I said, like I grew up kind of in the country in rural Ontario. Um, what I got to see of policing, they have helicopters and ATVs and stuff. And policing in the countryside and policing in the city are two very different beasts, right? And now the only policing I have to do is ensuring my students aren't plagiarizing, I guess. It's <laughs> <laughs> something we talk about a lot. And we will. Um, so I'm happy you mentioned uh, some of the, you know, police profiling and issues you, you know, found out about or kind of were uncovered for you in Canada. And we'll get to that later, but we kind of want to, you know, talk a little bit about uh, cannabis legalization first. Um, And before we get into the topic, we just, you know, want to clarify some language for our listeners. Uh, Can you uh, explain the difference between legalization and decriminalization when discussing marijuana? Uh, absolutely. So, and I think if we're going to start with language, let's talk about cannabis versus marijuana, 
Because okay. I use cannabis rather than marijuana because of the racist undertones with the term marijuana itself, right? So cannabis is a scientific name for the plant. Uh, marijuana is a term used yeah, around the world. Um, but uh, it was associated um, largely with Mexican migrants uh, in the United States at the time in which the drug was being outlawed. And so, you know, I'm sure we're gonna, we will talk a bit about the racist history behind drug criminalization and, and cannabis criminalization. But, you know, Harry Anslinger and uh, his um, colleagues and, and, and people like him uh, early on in the 20th century uh, linked the use of, of cannabis to Mexican migrants and the, the dangers that they posed uh, and used that as a reason to outlaw the drug. And, uh, and so I think it's important that we, you know, we acknowledge some of that racist past. And, and for that reason, I, I use the term cannabis as opposed to marijuana. Now, when it comes to um, legalization versus uh, decriminalization, um, what decriminalization does largely is simply remove the criminal penalties for uh, small scale possession. Um, Whereas legalization allows people to possess, uh, often as well, small quantities of cannabis. Uh, it allows them to perhaps grow, but importantly, it provides like a, a legalized or a regulatory framework for the sale and distribution of those drugs. So if we look at somewhere like Portugal, which has decriminalized all drugs, um, members of the public don't get a criminal record or they're not arrested and prosecuted for possessing drugs. Uh, but they don't have anywhere that they can go to purchase legally purchase drugs. And so you still rely on an illegal market to get those. We have drug legalization in Canada now, uh, cannabis, pardon me. We have cannabis legalization in Canada now. I wish we had broader drug legalization. Um, we have cannabis legalization. Um, there are more laws around the cannabis plant now than there were before legalization. But what this means is that as an adult in Ontario, I can possess up to 30 grams of cannabis in public. I can grow four plants in my house. Uh, I can uh, store much more than that, uh, much more than the 30 grams on my property. And of course, I can either go into a storefront now that they're open and buy it from a licensed uh, producer and distributor, or I can go online and buy it. And so it's really the availability um, of, of the drug that uh, distinguishes legalization from decriminalization. Mm, it's, it's interesting. And, you know, when we talk about these debates of cannabis legalization across the globe. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, people on, on, on one side or the other are having these conversations. Just generally, what do you think are some of the, the common myths and misconceptions of this kind of movement of dealing with cannabis legalization? Yeah. And I think the cannabis legalization and broader drug legalization, um, uh, both, uh, have some of the same myths and misconceptions. I think, you know, when we're talking about why we're seeing this move towards, cannabis legalization, and I would argue more broadly drug legalization, part of it's a, a, a recognition or an acknowledgement that the war on drugs has failed in its aims of er eradicating drug use, eradicating drug trafficking, and dealing with addiction, right? Actually, I think we're increasingly recognizing that drug prohibition and the war on drugs actually exacerbates or makes those problems worse, right? So it costs probably like 25 or 30 cents to produce a gram of, of weed, right? You sell that on the streets in Ontario for anywhere from eight to $12. The reason that there's such a markup is because, you know, prior to legalization, because it was illegal, people have to take risks in order, to, you know, people want the drug. And so people that are willing to take a risk to supply it 
end up reaping a fairly large reward. But I, so we've got the problems that are created by having the drug be illegal in terms of facilitating crime, right? And, and we can talk about whether or not it's organized crime, but when we look on an international scale, there's absolutely no doubt that large-scale uh, criminal enterprise is involved in the production and distribution of cannabis and other drugs. But then we got to think about like the other side, like what has the war on drugs in terms of the enforcement by the police, prosecution and courts and sentencing and prisons done to the people who are targeted, right? And uh, it's had devastating impacts as well. It's, it's ruined people's lives. It's, it's uh, torn families apart. Uh, it's harmed communities. And I would argue as a whole, it's harmed our society. And so I think the biggest, from my perspective, and this is where I come at this from, the biggest reason to legalize drugs um, is to move away from um, the harms that are caused by prohibition. And I don't think that, you know, cannabis is, is a harmless substance. Um, you know, we're seeing more science now showing that it, it's not harmless. And like anything, like many other mind-altering drugs, it can have negative consequences. But the negative consequences of prohibition far outweigh the negative consequences of legalization as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. Um, so earlier you uh, mentioned kind of the the racial implications of like some of the language behind like yeah. cannabis um, and how it, I guess that contributed to like prohibition and things of that nature. I was wondering, cause when we talk about the war on drugs or yeah, when we talk about it, we're often thinking about the U S but was there like a similar war on drugs and was that racial undertones like related to uh, cannabis you know, was that something that was just like U.S. based? Was that something that was also no, happening we, in Canada? Yeah, we beat you guys to the punch on both uh, <laughs> opium, which was first, and then cannabis. So when, when we look at this, like internationally, um, laws around like prohibiting drugs started really in the late 19th century. So the mid to late 1800s, let's say. Um, in the U.S., California uh, outlawed opium um, and started place some severe restrictions in the late 19th and early 20th century. But um, so, yeah, in Canada, we had the Opium Act of 1908. Um, the reason behind the criminalization of opium was actually uh, also heavily racialized. So we'd imported uh, and allowed a large number of Chinese people to migrate to Canada to help us complete the railroad that we built across the country. And when the railroad was complete, there were all these relatively young Chinese men that uh, were looking for jobs and they were viewed as competition to white laborers. And so there were a number of riots, largely on the West coast of Canada, uh, race riots protesting the presence of these, of these uh, Chinese people. And um, opium use was relatively common in Canada at the time, but uh, Chinese people were more likely, uh, at least the you know historical records suggest more likely to smoke opium or they were the, the smoking of opium was, um, associated with Chinese people, whereas, you know, white people might have been more likely to inject uh, some form of opium. So anyway, what the government did, and this was documented in our Museum of Civilization in Ottawa, is the government um, outlawed opium in 1908 and continued to, um, you know, publicly associate the use of opium with the Chinese population and effectively use the police to criminalize that population. So the majority of people criminalized for opium possession after 1908 for the first few decades of the law uh, were Chinese, even though the use, as I said, was relatively distributed uh, across the um, racial spectrum. Uh, you guys outlawed opium slightly later. 
Uh, and then we uh, outlawed cannabis in 1923. Um, and there was a woman named Emily Murphy, who was actually one of the first uh, judges, uh, magistrates, uh, female magistrates in the British Empire. She was celebrated in the women's suffrage movement for bringing about the vote for women. Uh, but she was also an ardent racist. And she wrote a lot about the um, perils associated with having non-white immigration to Canada. And she wrote a book um, or a series of uh, articles that were put together in a book called The Black Candle. And in that, she um, basically scared the country into criminalizing cannabis by saying um, or documenting or talking about the troubles, supposed troubles that non-white immigrants um, would pose to white Canadians, largely through their introduction of cannabis to uh, to whites. And so, yeah, we, we were really a kind of forerunner in that. Um, we didn't have such widespread racialized debates with respect to cannabis as existed in the United States. Um, but they were certainly there. Uh, but like you guys really took the torch and ran with it. It was, it was Americans that went over to the UN and, and to Europe and, and really got, uh, the rest of the world to sign on to this harsh enforcement oriented, um, international drug policies. Yeah, that's interesting. And kind of just a quick follow up question. I mean, even leading into discussing this can- cannabis legalization, because in the U.S. it seems to be this conversation as well that in some essence it's happening because it's bringing money to particular states. Right. So that's why they're experimenting with it, experimenting with it. And now I think part of the national conversation I guess along the lines of this kind of interest convergence, is it because they're trying to correct some of the social ills that happened because of the war on drugs, or is it because of now the government can make more money and get more resources off of legalizing cannabis? So is this same kind of conversation happening or has happened in Canada as well, as far as, I guess, the reasons of why they moved to legalize cannabis? Yeah, it, no, it hasn't. And it hasn't for a couple of years. So um, like for your listeners, like unlike the U.S. and U.K., uh, Canadian, the Canadian government and provincial governments, as well as Canadian criminal justice agencies, don't typically release race-based criminal justice data. So, you know, if you guys want to find out about uh, the race of people arrested for certain crimes, you can go to the FBI website, right? Or you can go to the Bureau of Justice Statistics website and find out a lot about who ends up being convicted in court and what their racial background is, and the same for corrections. Um Our justice agencies, for the most part, even though many collect that information, they don't make it public. So it was Mm. um, only very recently that we got good data, for example, on racial differences in cannabis arrest rates. And so, um, you know, to answer your initial question, no, we didn't have the same discussion really about reparations with respect to cannabis legalization. It came about very differently. Um, our current prime minister, Justin Trudeau, um, was you know, looking at the polls and they consistently said that Canadians were in favor of cannabis legalization. He was a member of parliament. He was about to run for um, prime minister and he realized that he could use cannabis legalization as one of his key um, pieces of, of, of his platform, of his election platform. And he did. Um, and he promised Canadians that if he were elected, he'd legalize cannabis and he admitted to smoking while sitting as an MP. Um, and, and in doing so, he said that he wanted to do um, largely three things. Protect public health by you know, providing a regulated supply. To protect young people by restricting their use. And, and um, thirdly, to uh, reduce the market share of uh, organized crime or to stamp organized crime out of the drug trade. So 
the um, racialized nature of the drug law enforcement and that debate uh, didn't even feature in discussion until um, probably about a year before uh, we got to legalization. Um, there was the same journalist that published the racial profiling series that I saw a couple of decades ago almost now while I was a brand new criminology student. Um, managed to get his hands on some arrest data that we looked at, analyzed, and he wrote a, ser- uh, a couple of articles on that. And a reporter at Vice News got arrest data from across the country. And that was published before we got to legalization. Um, but the wheels were too far in motion, I would say, at that point. Um, and, and the government, I don't think, you know, recognized how much pressure it was going to come under to provide some of these equity provisions and, and so dragged its feet. And so we don't have even, I think, some of the most basic uh, measures that we could have. So um, it was about clean supply. It was about protecting children. It was about um, stamping out uh, the criminal element. But I think more importantly, those were the stated aims. I think importantly, it was about uh, politics in terms of Justin Trudeau getting elected as prime minister. Uh, it was about politics in terms of the um, tax revenue that can be generated. And then so in another way, it was simply about money. So this was largely about money and politics. Uh, okay. Okay. Thanks. Mm. So speaking of money, um, I guess, how can the economic benefits of legalization, it, it makes a ton of money. How could that be used to promote social change? Like if it, yeah. you know, hasn't done some of those other things. Yeah. So I think, you know, broadly, I think there are three things that cannabis legalization can do to promote positive social change. I think the first of those though, the first thing that has to happen is, is, is clearing the criminal records of people who were convicted of crimes that are no longer illegal. Cause you know, any economic benefits can only go so far when people are still saddled with criminal records that affects their ability to complete their education, get jobs, travel, get housing, volunteer, all of those things. So I think the pardons are more appropriately the expungement. So the complete clearing of those records needs to come first. And we've seen that in some American uh, jurisdictions, right? Expungement. I think that one of the ones that I like the most actually is what they've done in San Francisco and what they've done in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Um, the district attorney attorneys in those jurisdictions have partnered with Code for America. Code for America has developed a machine learning uh, algorithm or tool that combs through the charging, arrest, and conviction documents, identifies the appropriate people based on their charge and conviction codes, and then files the paperwork with the courts to uh, proceed with the expungement. And so the criminalized don't actually have to do anything themselves. It's the state uh, taking on the task of clearing those records. Um, and I think, you know, I think that's an important first step. Um, but beyond that, you know, I think that space needs to be opened up uh, within the cannabis industry for the formerly criminalized, as well as people that have lived in highly police and, and highly criminalized areas. And uh, there are a couple of, I think, really good examples of this as well in American jurisdictions. Um, so there are kind of the social equity programs that we see in places like Massachusetts, Shalene Title, who was a, a member of the Minority Cannabis Business Association and integral in drafting their uh, model legislations, a, a cannabis commissioner in, in Massachusetts. And she's insured and worked really hard to Um, have equity provisions included in their law. So, you know, there's a specialized tract or or class of licenses that are open to people who are formally criminalized themselves or who've come from areas that have been heavily criminalized. 
And then there are other supports that can be provided in terms of guidance and support around business development and you know legal regulation and things like that. And so we've got that in Massachusetts and as well in uh, like I know Oakland actually had some of the first of these types of initiatives. And I think that's you know that's really good. Um, like our some of our Canadian companies, you know, our most valuable Canadian cannabis companies are worth several billion dollars each. Um, Canopy Growth Corps probably worth seven or eight billion dollars. I haven't looked today, but um, it's worth a lot. And so there's a lot of money to be made there. And I think that the opportunity to uh, profit from cannabis should be evenly distributed across society. And as I said, it's part of the reason that the criminal record thing is so important, right? Because, you know, there are situations in some jurisdictions where people have a criminal record for possessing a few grams of cannabis, they can't even get a job at a dispensary, whereas someone else is now selling literally tons of the same product and, and making themselves a millionaire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's that. And then I, I think, like, you know, we need to see the reinvestment of some of the revenue from legalized sales back in the communities, again, to the people that were most harmed by prohibition. So uh, in an ideal model, a certain percentage of the tax revenue generated from the sales of cannabis, from cannabis-related events, whether they be conferences or um, conventions and things like that, would go into a special fund that, again, would be directed. It's, it's pretty easy to identify, for example, like the neighborhoods in a city that were most affected by prohibition, right? The police collect all kinds of information and data, and you can find out where the police arrested the most people. Uh, you can use conviction records, you can use incarceration records to actually find, um, to locate, to identify the neighborhoods from which the most people were criminalized for first specific types of jobs. And so we can use kind of like GIS or um, geographic information systems and software to help us identify the areas that have been most hurt and the people have been, that have been most hurt. And then it's a matter of you know, investing some of the re- those revenues into things that make communities and neighborhoods um, vibrant. And so, um, schools, community centers, of course, community health centers, uh, jobs, training centers and programs, um, hospitals, you know, we've literally spent billions of dollars on police courts and corrections to ruin individuals and families and communities, you know, lives and well-being. And we need to take some of that money that we're not spending on those things and that we're generating from cannabis and, and very much uh, repair those harms. And as I said, I think that can be done through the funding of community institutions as well as programs and investing in individuals. You know, I agree. Um, and again, that's uh, a lot of the, the rationale that has been put out there as far as, you know, not only, you know, uh, legalizing it for economic reasons, but how it can be used to to promote positive and social change. And um, I'm, I'm completely on that wavelength. And I think that sometimes, although we have people and researchers like yourself and other people who are, who are leaders um, advocate for these positions of how it can be used in a positive light, sometimes when things are implemented, uh, there may be maybe unforeseen or unintended consequences that happen. Um, and especially for people of color, and sometimes it's hard for us to predict or see that. Um, I think you've alluded to some, right, as far as what we should do to make sure that there are any consequences. But even with Canada already uh, um, legalizing since October, has there been any evidence of things that maybe uh, people weren't prepared for because of legalization um, that may have come about since then or, or things like other, along those lines? Oh, that's a that's a good question. Um, I think like Canada, unlike some of the American jurisdictions that have legalized, uh, took a very kind of conservative approach 
right? So there were a small number of licenses that were handed out to people to produce and then to sell. Uh, it was left up to the provinces, so our equivalent of your states, to determine exactly how it would be distributed. But in Ontario, where I live, the most populous province, uh, at first it was only sales online through the Ontario Cannabis Store. So the government became the biggest cannabis dealer um, kind of overnight. And uh, you had to go online, use your credit card, and, and, and buy it in that way. And so um, in other jurisdictions, there, there have been more stores. I think one of the biggest obstacles that we've had is, is actually providing people with ac- who want it access to it. And so one of mm-hmm. the most recent surveys show that 80% of people are still getting their product from uh, the illegal market. And that might be, you know, like you, you might expect that, um, you know, this is a, a policy that's changed relatively quickly. Uh, I think a lot of people aren't comfortable, for example, with going online and entering their credit card information <laughs> to buy something. Right. Like the, the Ontario cannabis store had a data breach within the first couple of weeks of legalization. And so if that was an American agency or American uh, group that got that data and that was shared with U.S. border and customs for whatever reason, given that the drug's still federally illegal, that could impede people's ability to move south of the border. But then it also like that itself opens up some equity uh, questions. Right. Like. You needed to have a credit card to buy mm-hmm. legal cannabis in Ontario up until very recently. And even now, the handful of stores that exist in Toronto are in the most, most wealthy areas. So if you don't have a credit card or you don't have uh, access to a credit card or you don't live close to one of the areas that has a store, then you're effectively left to the illegal market to get your product, right? And so that still raises some some problems. But I think, and I didn't touch upon, I should go back to, you know, I alluded to, uh, I pointed to Massachusetts and Oakland, and uh, I'm thankful that uh, New York didn't legalize until the equity measures are um, better worked into um, the law. You know, there was that debate recently. You guys got pretty close in New York, and then um, thankfully, um, uh, a couple of representatives, right, uh, protested uh, like Como's suggestion that we'll deal with the equity measures after, we'll deal with the details of equity after we've legalized. And the Canadian example shows that you can't do that, that it needs to come up front. But that doesn't mean even when it comes up front that it'll be perfect. And so we see that the uptake on the equity initiatives in Oakland, as well as like in California, as well as in Massachusetts have been slow. And so, you know, when we think about who's been criminalized when we think about who, who the people that come from the um, areas that have been heavily criminalized like part of the reason we want to ensure that these equity measures exist is to provide people with opportunities that didn't have those opportunities before and these might be related to education employment uh, many of the people that would be applying for e- the equity licenses haven't run large businesses before right they mm-hmm. might not have the business acumen the legal acumen the accounting experience that you need to run a business and so Uptake is going to be slow, but then we need to like consider also that uh, there are always going to be people that try and manipulate a system. So mm-hmm. in Ontario, a certain amount of licenses to sell in storefronts were handed out, and there was a, a, a policy in place that you know the large producers could only own so many stores. I think it was limited to one store. Well, they effectively just create another company that then goes and buys up these stores. And, I, and um, one of the concerns around the equity licenses is that other non-equity candidates are essentially going to kind of come along and buy up those equity licensed companies after the fact. And we saw something similar in South Africa after apartheid. Um, there was a you know, policy or law that a certain amount of business had to be black owned. But you know, white companies could effectively simply place uh, a black person as director of the company um, or you know, 
engage in some other we call like shady tactics to kind of circumvent or skirt those laws. And I imagine we're going to see the same thing. Uh, we, we have seen some of the same. We'll continue to see some of the same thing happen with respect to cannabis. And I think, you know, part of that is inevitable. People are always going to try and game a system. Uh, I think part of it's going to be growing pains. Um, like one of the things I think we need to consider too, whether we're looking in Canada, we're looking in the U.S. or, or elsewhere, you know, a lot of other countries are going to go very soon as that we're really at the forefront of this like major kind of social change, right? And it'll be a while before all of the kinks are worked out. Um, but I, I do think, again, to reiterate something that I said before, we need to make sure that we're setting up the best system we can for a variety, you know, in a number of ways in terms of like providing a safe product, uh, limiting the harms to health and ensuring, importantly, ensuring uh, reparations as we do it from the get go, because I think it's harder to incorporate those things after the fact than it is up front. Mm-hmm. Um, your discussion of like the equity provisions and, you know, everything that you've mentioned, it made me think of your TED talk and the story about, you know, Daryl and Ryan. Yeah. And uh, for our listeners, if, you know, you haven't seen the TED talk, listen to it, because when you think about, you know, the potential, um, harm caused to, you know, certain people and how they are potentially precluded from, you know, engaging, you know, in businesses that um, are very lucrative, but got them in trouble in the first place. It's kind of like, it's devastating. It, it's maddening. It's, it's a lot of things. So if you haven't listened to the TED Talk, we'll link it because you definitely should. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, if we don't deal with some of these equity issues, then we run the risk of making some of the problems caused by the war on drugs even worse, like exacerbating the problems, right? Like the war on drugs has resulted in serious racial and social inequality. And now we have the situation where the same people who were protected from criminalization under the war on drugs get to benefit from legalization while the people who were criminalized are left out. So their lives continue to be negatively affected while another group of like largely white, uh, upwardly mobile uh, individuals get to get to benefit in a real way. And like we're, we're talking, you know, the first cannabis billionaires have been made. Um, it, it's not uncommon for the uh, owners of some of our largest companies to, to have stakes in their companies that are worth into the hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Or a hundred million dollars. So we're not talking like pocket change here. We're talking huge sums of money. And that's only going to grow as, as the industry goes, goes global. Hmm. So you don't have a crystal ball, but, you know, do you foresee like more countries um, legalizing uh, cannabis nationwide? Again, is just Canada and Uruguay right now? As a large. So I, I don't have a crystal ball, but absolutely I foresee. So basically how this has been going is that first comes medical, then comes recreational. And so I think the best way to kind of gauge as to how things are going is just to look at the number of countries that have either instituted medical regimes or are thinking about doing so. And we now have, you know, a significant number of countries that are, that have medical or engaged in research. So we've got, you know, like Germany, um, Australia, Israel does a ton of stuff around cannabis. And there are discussions in those places also to consider kind of recreational cannabis as well. So, um, you know, my, my um, estimate would be, or my, within, you know, the West, I will say, because we see a bit of a doubling down on the war on drugs in some Asian countries, like the Philippines, for example, under Philip Duterte have been doing horrible things um, to people that are in, involved in drug trafficking. Um, 
So this is, you know, it's global in the sense that countries around the world are looking at legalization, but they are largely Western countries. Uh, within a decade, we'll see a, a whole bunch. I know that's a very specific number. Within a decade, we'll see a whole <laughs> bunch of countries legalize cannabis. Uh, I said publicly um, the other day in a talk, and I've said it a few times previously, like I'm, I'm convinced that by the end of my academic career, you know, I'm just going into year five as a professor. I imagine I probably got about 30 left. Um, but by the end of my academic career, I have no doubt that drugs well beyond cannabis will be legal. And you guys just, it was Oregon that just, uh, no, sorry, Colorado uh, just legalized magic mushrooms or psilocybin for recreational use, right? Um, and there are more discussion about that. And so when we think about the other drugs, we now have like MDMA or ecstasy, psilocybin or magic mushrooms, ketamine and acid being used in medical trials to deal with depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, and to help people deal with end-of-life problems, uh, end-of-life concerns. And so mm -hmm. uh, I have no doubt that um, you'll be able to go to a doctor, to a pharmacist, or perhaps to a store at some point in the not-too-distant future and get anything from you know mushrooms through to heroin. And again, I, I'm not suggesting that people should go out and try those drugs, and I'm not suggesting that they're good for you. Uh, but having them be illegal and criminalizing people for using those drugs, if they choose to do that without any kind of drug uh, abuse problem, or criminalizing people with drug abuse problems is not useful. And part of what we're seeing now in Canada is that we've got a tainted drug supply. So most of the opiates, for example, on the West Coast and throughout the country, most of the opioid drugs that people are using on the streets are, are tainted and they're poisoned. And so we have a, a crisis where people are dying. And we, we solve that not through continuing to throw people that are using in jail, but by ensuring that they have access to a clean, safe supply of drugs and that they're provided with the supports that they would need to minimize any harms to themselves uh, or to get off of drugs if they want to stop using. We, a lot of your research uh, kind of moving forward a little bit because we've been talking a lot about cannabis yeah. legalization. And, and I know you, you focus a lot on uh, policing as well. And, um, you know, I guess one of your focus areas is looking at uh, black males perceptions and experiences with police in Toronto. Um, so just out of curiosity, you know, what are some of the things because, you know, in, in the U.S. we have tons of conversation and debates now going along with with policing and people of color so it's good to also get your perspective on this with the policing aspect and how it is in toronto and places like that and i you know i've never been to toronto but from what i've heard it's a very diverse city and the like yeah. and um uh, so what are these experiences and the black males perceptions with policing in in this particular area yeah that's a good question so you've never been to toronto you should come visit it is a beautiful oh. place come in yeah, the summer my, the okay in the summer Unless you want to come support the Raptors, then you can come right now because we're going to take <laughs> Well, I'm rooting for them because I'm tired of, I'm tired of going to state. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, no, it's an interesting question. Um, and, you know, I'm originally from, as I said, the UK. And so I and I've got a sibling who lives in, in London. And so I, I consider England as well here, too, in, in a lot of my work. And like, unfortunately, the situation in Canada is much more similar to that in the US than many people would acknowledge. So, you know, I think generally Canada does a good job of being kind of tolerant and, and we don't have as much overt racial strife as as many other multicultural countries might but at the same time we have these policies of multiculturalism we still have like very deeply ingrained um, systemic institutional and, and interpersonal racism so you know many of your listeners are probably surprised to hear that um, 
first of the six, first of the six of the first 60 legislators of Upper Canada. So the people who really founded this country were slave owners, right? Slave, mm-hmm. s- slavery existed here. It wasn't just the end of the Underground Railroad, but the people who founded this country owned slaves, meaning that they, you know, saw blacks as dehuman and um, are as, as less than human. And, and that kind of mindset was prevalent and, and continue to exist. We had segregation in our schools, at least on the books, uh, a lot longer than you guys did. Um, and then we have our whole experience with the indigenous population as well. And so, um, you know, folks are shocked when I tell them that a black man was more likely to be stopped and searched by the police in Toronto in 2013-14 than he was stopped and frisked in New York, right? Um, black people are, are uh, greatly overrepresented in police stop and search and, and importantly in documenting. So we've had this car, uh, phenomenon of carding where because police relations with the public have broken down generally and they have a difficult time gathering information and intelligence. They've resorted to, as they do in the U.S., you know, same thing happens in New York, stopping people, asking them a bunch of questions, entering it into a database so they can go back to that database and use it for their predictive policing technologies now. Um, So perceptions of the police amongst black people generally, uh, and actually in the last piece of work I did, black females had slightly worse perceptions than black males of the police. But their perceptions of the police are generally um, poor with respect to bias. Uh, When we ask people whether they think the police are doing a good or a decent job of enforcing the law, many people do. Um, and those people that live in highly policed neighborhoods tend to think the police are not necessarily doing a good job, but they're doing a lot of enforcement because they're on the receiving end of it. Uh, but we've just had another study come out today showing that again, yes, you know, it's, it's black Torontonians and, and the same goes for other jurisdictions, black Canadians who have more negative views of the police, um, because they're subject to increased rates of stop and search compared with, uh, white people and, and Asian people, South Asian people, for example, but not only are they subject to higher levels of stop and search, but they're also treated or they, they feel that they're treated more negatively during those encounters, right? And so uh, when we ask them how they felt, feel about their last encounter or how they felt about their last encounter, more likely to say it was unjust, more likely to say that the officer was rude, less likely to have been told a reason for a stop, and more likely to feel like sad or negative about those uh, interactions. And people often say, well, that's just the person's perception. Well, the fact of the matter is, you know, your perception informs your reality. And if you perceive your last encounter to have been negative, like, you know, we see it, it importantly, that influences how you interact with the police in your next encounter, which can start off an encounter in a negative way from the get-go. So on top of that, we've got, you know, the stop and search, we've got the treatment during the encounter. And then uh, we also have just had another study recently come out um, showing that blacks are greatly overrepresented as they are in America in um, police use of force cases. So both in lethal and non-lethal cases of of police use of force. And, um, you know, some of these issues are related to policing. Uh, Many of them are, though, related also to broader structural issues. So like in America, uh, black Canadians are more likely to live in poverty. They're more likely to live in um, areas uh, that have high concentrations of racialized people in them uh, and more likely to live in areas that um, are afflicted by problems of crime and violence. And so, you know, at a certain point, the police have to attend to community problems, right? We don't want the police not to attend. And so if uh, African Canadians and indigenous people in this country are more likely to live in those conditions, then they're more likely to be subjected to you know, harsh enforcement type of policing practices. And then we have the experience of discrimination that exists on top of that. So I think one of the key differences between Canada and the U.S. is that um, like you guys just have like more policing and more criminal justice. And so everyone's more negatively affected. 
right? Um, your your justice system is just so expansive, and so like it doesn't matter your race. You're more you know just generally more likely than Canadians to come into contact with the justice system in one way or another. Mm. You know, this has been a very eye-opening conversation. I remember right after our election in 2016, everybody talked about how they were going to move to Canada. Like, I'm moving <laughs> to Canada because, you know, it was perceived as like this paradise. And not to say, you know, I'm pretty sure there are really amazing things about Canada. Yeah. But it's just been eye-opening because it's like, you know, every every place has its issues. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. You know, I was, I was in the U.S. up until just before the election. I moved back in May of 2016. And I'm glad I left before uh, the election rather than afterwards. Don't get me wrong. I really enjoyed my time in Indiana. I would have spent a few more years there had a job not come up here. Um, but things are, you know, like I, I, I say, and I'm often highly critical of, of what we have going on here. Canada is generally a, a good place to live. But, you know, that, that certainly depends on who you are, what you look like, and where you live. Um, and I think, you know, it's important to acknowledge, and I, I'm doing some work around this at the moment, that you know, the similarities in these issues, like the institution of, of the transit, so uh, European colonization and transatlantic slavery did something to how the world views indigenous populations and how the world views black people, right? Um, and it also did something to um, establish a set of political and economic relations that we've not yet uh, escaped from or we've not yet moved beyond, right? So when, again, we look at these things like concentrated poverty, when we look at residential uh, patterns of, of residency or residential segregation, and when we look at the treatment, we can't forget that the police are the, you know, often the most visible representatives of the state. And the justice system is, a, is one of the core institutions of a given state, right? And so um, the treatment of, of racialized people generally, but certainly of black and indigenous people by these institutions, I think is reflective of this colonial past. And I think it's important, you know, for, for us as scholars and, and for whoever's listening to not only think about what's happening in, in your local area, your city or your town or, or in your state or in your country, but connect the dots between what's happening in your city, your state and your country to what's happening elsewhere around the world. And we need to look no further than, you know, the loss of jobs that's afflicted the Rust Belt, right? Where have those jobs gone? Like globalization has taken those jobs elsewhere, right? Which has created a whole set of problems. Well, the issues that we see with the criminal justice system have been created by a similar set of problems. And uh, the more that we acknowledge that and investigate that, I think the better position we are to try and understand how we can fix these issues and move beyond them. No, yeah, I agree. And, you know, I had a quite again, look, thinking about Canada and, and the U.S. And, and even other places. Right. Um, but I'm curious to know, like in the U.S., when there are um, issues and cases of like police brutality or police misconduct and, you know, a lot of the response, either the social response, things like protesting, et cetera, or even the response to the criminal justice system where more often than not, the police officers are not held criminally liable or responsible for their actions. Um, do we see similar things like that in, in Canada as far as when these cases happen? Are police officers more likely to get you know, arrested or criminally indicted, et cetera? Or is, are there similar kind of situations set up? No, I, I think it's basically the same thing. We had a police officer who just who shot and killed a young man on uh, public transit. Um, a few years ago and he was convicted of second degree murder, but like it was, it was so obvious and so egregious. It was all caught on CCTV, like on camera. Mm -hmm. And there'd been a number of police officers on the scene, uh, for a while. And this, this officer just came in, the young man was, 
having a mental health uh, crisis and, and holding a knife. And this officer came on and shot him a number of times and he went down. And then the officer shot a number more times on, on the transit. And um, that was, you know, uh, that stood out as, as an anomaly. For the most part, officers are, are, are not indicted. They're not prosecuted for this. Uh, I want to ask you guys, like, has, you know, uh, when I, w- I moved to uh, Indiana in the summer of 2014, um, right as things were, you know, um, really picking up in Ferguson and, and then in New York and across the country, and there was so much movement with the Obama administration. Now I can, you know, read all I want and watch TV. How, how, do things feel very different now with respect to the, the, the conversations around race and policing and use of force? Um, do they feel much, are they much different now than they were prior to the election of Donald Trump? Yeah, I would, I would, I would <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, when Obama was in office, he was definitely towards the latter, I guess, couple of years of, of, he, of him being in office, they were definitely moving. There was a sense of, okay, um, he's addressing criminal justice issues, supporting criminal justice reform, and we we're moving along those lines. When when Trump got into office, he autumn, uh, right off the bat started putting in a lot of executive orders to kind of stop the traction that Obama was doing with criminal justice reform. Um, and so a lot of uh, people and criminologists and whoever just felt that, you know, there was kind of not going to be any hope or any progressive movement going in that direction with Trump being in office because a lot of his rhetoric was pro-police, pro-police, mm-hmm. protect police, and add more uh, protection for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, but things kind of took a little bit of an interesting turn when, um, you know, with the... Um, what was the uh, what was the act that was just passed with um, like Kamala and Booker and them when they were letting people out? Um, I can't remember the name of it, uh, but anyway, it was this big criminal justice reform, really for on the for the federal prisons first and steps. stuff like that. Yeah, the first step act. Yeah, there it is. Um, uh, which you know people were trying to kind of kind of came a little bit out of left field because again that was kind of going against his initial rhetoric, um, but that was pushed, which, which is helpful and does help a lot of um, I guess uh, victims of the war on drugs who are in federal prisons to kind of potentially get released and, and get some services and stuff like that. Um, so we don't know if he's going to continue that or if there's going to be more conversations along those lines, which people are pushing, but uh, still not with the momentum that Obama had kind of yeah. started for sure. It, that was to be expected, right? Again, as you said, kind of based on his rhetoric, but I, I wondered how much, uh, you know, we'd seen a decrease in, in incarceration rates, which from my understanding seemed to, um, have held steady somewhat anyway, but, uh, yeah, the, the other, the sad thing about, you know, like whether it be drug laws or criminal justice more generally is that it is so political, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you know, here much. in Canada, but obviously in, in the States too, we've had both conservative and, and liberal political parties that have supported kind of archaic tough on crime policies, right? Like obviously Bill Clinton, um, instituted a number of policies that have like, you know, we continue to feel the effects of now. And so like, these are issues that, w- that we as scholars and people in the field have to deal with is the, uh, continually changing, uh, pendulum with respect to these criminal justice issues. And so, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. and it's getting a, getting a lot of Democrats potentially in trouble for the 2020, <laughs> yeah. uh, election. So yeah. I think politics is, you know, kind of pushing things in a, in a different direction. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Um, so this was an enjoyable conversation. We just want to kind of give you the floor to, you know, say anything that we didn't touch on that you think might be important, important to mention. No, I think you know we did. We've done a good job of covering a lot of ground in a relatively short amount of time. I think again, you know, 
in thinking about legalization, I've said this before, but um, I, I will say it again. Um, like I would encourage people really to do what they can to ensure that equity measures are included in uh, any kind of legalization prior to its uh, like coming into force or being enacted, because waiting till after the fact um, is uh, is too late. Um, and uh, would encourage those that are interested to you know see what they can do to get involved in the industry. Uh, I like you know the Hood Incubator and and Cali and what other organizations are doing to help people come into the world of weed, so to speak. Uh, this is a burgeoning industry, uh, a billion dollar industry and opening up all kinds of opportunities, not just for business, but also for um, research and science too, right? And so I'm, you know, legalization has created a number of opportunities for me from a scholarly perspective, uh, as it has for people there in medicine and pharmacy and, and, and all different other kinds of sciences. So there's a lot of uh, I think the future holds a lot of potential with respect to, as I said, drugs generally and cannabis in particular. And I would encourage people that are interested to, to capitalize on those opportunities. No, no, thank you. Appreciate that. And um, is there anywhere people can find you, a website, social media, stuff like that? Absolutely. Um, I go by A.O. Bempa, a little short for my name, A-O-B-E-M-P-A-H. So uh, Twitter at A.O. Bempa or um, aobempa.com is my website. And as you said, uh, check out the TED, TEDx talk. It's the untapped promise of cannabis legalization. Thank you, thank you. We'll definitely link that that information when we when we post this episode as well. So great, that'll be good. All right, thank you. Okay, thank you guys very much. It was a great conversation. Yeah. yeah Dad, so what do you think about Professor Kwesi Awusu Bimpa? That interview was so amazing. Um, I feel like I learned something from all of our guests. I, I really do. But it just kind of reminded me of like the statistic or just kind of this, I guess, belief about Americans, how, you know, we are so centered and so focused on the U.S. that we kind of miss what's going on in the outside world. Um, we're just so U.S. centric that, you know, we turn a blind eye to, you know, what else is going on. So I felt like I not only learned a lot about Canada, but I'm just like, yo, I need to really be reading up on other countries. You know? Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> During the interview, I was just definitely shaking my head at myself. I'm like, Tori, you got to do better, man. Because I'm like, literally, I'm learning so much because I lo- know so little about Canada. And mm-hmm. for it to be, you know, maybe I, I can have a pass with countries across the sea, you know, and in other places. But this this country is very, <laughs> it's very close to us. You know, people yeah. go there all the time. And I feel like, yeah, I should know a little bit more about this country that is uh, pretty much our neighbor. Um mm-hmm. And easy transit and you know uh, I don't know I feel like I should just know a lot more so I kind of disappointed myself I'm glad he came and, and enlightened me um, a lot more mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's interesting because you know last summer we had the entire episode the four actually it was the 420 I think we did it on 420 mm-hmm. the 420 mm-hmm. episode about marijuana um, or cannabis you know since he corrected us marijuana you know, uh, but we had an episode about that and, you know, the history and we actually did, you know, kind of mention, you know, where the like racial stereotypes and like the racialization of uh, criminalization or prohibition came from. But to know that like Canada was first yeah. and that they have like some of these same issues or like some of the same rhetoric was used to support the criminalization of uh, cannabis yeah, yeah, that, uh, 
Yeah, we missed that in our in our talk. <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> we did a good job. We just don't be having our international lens on. Which I know, but it, it I think it t- it shows us now that okay, let's you know try to have a more global perspective because at the end of the day, you know, the world is getting smaller because of technology, because of you know our access to be able to because tra- we travel to these places. Mm-hmm. If you're gonna travel somewhere, you need to know about it. So because the world mm-hmm. is becoming so small with technology and you know high-speed transportation, there's really uh, a need for us to better educate ourselves. No, I like that idea. Like, of like, I think I might start doing that. Anywhere I travel to out the country from now on, I'm going to start, like, reading up about it, you know, before I go. Just Mm -hmm. to see what it's like, what's the history like, you know, what, how, how they're pretty much set up. Um, That way, you know, I could be more informed myself, and I'm also going there. I should, you know, learn a little bit more about it instead of just going there for the for the touristy things. Mm-hmm. Another thing I was surprised by some of the statistics related to policing in Toronto versus like places like New York, I would have never guessed ever. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, you know, again, like you said in the interview, I think us Americans had this uh, misconception of, of Canada. Again, we're not trying to say Canada is a terrible place, but like you said, after Trump won, they were like, Oh, going to Canada. Um, I think, I think there was like an uptick in people getting there. Um, their, uh, what you call it, their, passports. Uh, their passports, right? Um, and, and I think it was reality. But again, like you said, similar to America, it's like who you are, where you live, where your position's at, you know, and um, going to Canada, we probably would experience some of those same things. Wouldn't be At least for, for people of color, we wouldn't be able to escape a lot of the issues we see here, um, especially talking about police brutality and stuff, they're more likely to still um, come knocking at my door than they are, you know, my white neighbors um, yeah. being in Canada. It's funny because Jadena, you know who Jadena is? Uh-huh, uh-huh. So he like has this song called Bully of the Earth. And one of my favorite lines in that song is, it's a new day. He says N-word. I'm not going to say it on here. <laughs> it's a new day. Why are you only thinking you can run a Canada? Because it's like, and that's so true. Like, that is the go-to. Oh, I don't like what's going on in the U.S. I'm going to run a Canada. And you're going to run over there and don't even know what you're getting yourself into. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, is that most of uh, my friends or people that I know or just black celebrities who I know who've gone to uh, maybe predominantly black countries or African countries and stuff like that really always usually come back and have this feeling of, like how they just were able to kind of um I don't know what's the word I'm looking for, but they were able to kind of be themselves and like not have the pressure of worrying about race because everybody there looked like them, you know, it was like this different feeling and they just felt more at, I guess they would say they would feel like more at home um in these particular countries than they would, you know, in other countries that are predominantly white, they didn't stand out and they were able to actually enjoy their experience a lot more. And they would say like, you know, I don't understand why people always talk about these other countries, like going to Canada, going to the UK or whatever, when there are countries full of black folks, uh, which may, you know, be more conducive to to you and your lifestyle and who you are. Who knows? Yeah, that's how I felt in Jamaica. Uh, mm-hmm. It was fabulous. <laughs> I can't wait to get there. I'll be out there soon. Uh, I, but that's what, you know, Kristen and I, <laughs> it's this thing we have. Like, yeah, we're trying to go to all the countries we go to. We are usually go to countries just full of people of color that are, you know, whether it's in like, like Mexico or Latino countries or, you know, in the Caribbean islands. Um, and we're like, yeah, we're going to give them our money before we get these white folks our money. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we're not rushing to Europe yet. Uh, you know, I know people like going to, to London and Paris, which is probably, you know, great places. We'll make it out there eventually. But um, we're hitting up, you know countries where people look like us first and then then go to the other ones. 
Um, but no, it's a great conversation. Like you said, I think I uh, learned a lot about cam- cannabis legalization. And, and yeah, I think a part of this is good that we have this conversation because as, you know, uh, Canada already moved forward with it. But as we're moving forward with it in America, it's good to make sure that we are continuously reinforcing and putting out there what should be done so we don't continuously damage our community. And how it should be, you know, uh, uh, just done the right way when we're talking about policies. And, and, and the main, I think, theme I got from from his his talk is that it's about um, access and opportunity <laughs> uh, and, and having equal and access, op- access and opportunity for all parties and black folks, especially or people who have been uh, victims of the system because of this very thing that is not legalized. Should they should have, you know, be yeah. first in line or one of the people in line to to gain this new benefit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree mm-hmm. um, but other than that you know it was a great conversation make sure you all check out his TED talk uh, we have, we'll have it linked here on our post so check it out just click the link watch it share it you know with everybody because it is informative and it's good for us to kind of know what our neighbors to the north are doing <laughs> north of the wall right Game of Thrones whatever um, but anyway continue to uh, if you haven't yet follow us on social media at BHD Podcast Instagram Twitter and Facebook uh, go to our website to keep all our latest content www.blackandhollyanddangerous.com um, and if you haven't uh, definitely rate and review us on iTunes that is very helpful to us and then share us with your friends share us with your family share us with your enemies and as always continue to be the oppressor's worst fear if you're interested in continuing this and other conversations visit our website blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list suggest topics and participate in our discussion forums follow us on twitter instagram and facebook at bhd podcast and please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform and as always continue to be the oppressor's worst fear <laughs>